WLRN Edition 79, broadcasting in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. I was born woman, off my knees I will stand for my liberation, sisters rise again. I was born woman, off my knees I will stand for my liberation, rise again. Greetings and welcome to the 79th edition podcast of Women's Liberation Radio News for this Thursday, November 3rd, 2022. This is Aurora Linnea, biophilic feminist and reality enthusiast. In observation of the recent Halloween holiday, we've taken as our topic for this month's show something truly spine-chilling, a horrific scourge upon the earth if ever there was one. Listener, beware, because today we shall probe the darkest depths of men's sexual terrorism. Our focus this month is the male sex right, a concept central to the new book by the indomitable Sheila Jeffries, legendary lesbian feminist scholar extraordinaire. Her book, Penile Imperialism, The Male Sex Right and Women's Subordination, was released in September by Spinifex Press, and it's an absolute must-read. We'll hear an excerpt from an interview I did with Ms. Jeffries about the book, followed by in-house commentary on the subject of the male sex right from WLRN's own Sekhmet She-Owl at the end of the show. So please do stay tuned. The team at WLRN produces a monthly radio broadcast to break the sound barrier women are blocked by under the status quo rule of men. This blocking of women's discourse we see in all sectors of society, be they conservative, liberal, mainstream, progressive, or radical. The thread that runs through all of American politics, except for separatist feminism, is male dominance and entitlement in all spheres. To start off today's edition, here is WLRN's World News segment with WLRN correspondent Emily Ann Lorenzen. Take it away, Emily. Thanks, Aurora. Protests continue to erupt throughout Iran after Masa Amini, who was arrested for not wearing her hijab properly, died in police custody. At least 40 journalists who have reported on the protests have been arrested, and many of them were arrested in their homes and their devices were confiscated. Yalda Mowari, a photojournalist, was taken to a women's prison after covering protests in Tehran. She described the conditions of the prison in southeast Tehran as quote-unquote horrible, with more than 100 women crammed into a tight space. She said, quote, there are only three bathrooms, and prison authorities prescribe many tranquilizers for the prisoners, unquote. One journalist was fired by his employer after being arrested for sharing a post on social media, and he was reinstated by his employer but has restricted internet access and has been told to stay home. He said, quote, 
I am writing what they're asking me to write. They're trying to push stories of how all the news about the protests is untrue. I am in survival mode, so I continue to write what they tell me to." Unquote. The latest figures from Iran Human Rights indicate that at least 201 people, including 23 children, have been killed in the protests. Iran International reported that the regime had arrested school children and sent them to quote-unquote psychological centers to prevent them from becoming quote-unquote antisocial characters. There have been internet blackouts across the country, restrictions on what Iranians can search online, and interference in social media activity since the protests began. Many European cities have rallied in support of Iranian women and protesters, including in Germany, Italy, France, and the United Kingdom. Female prison guards in Portugal have complained after being forced to strip search a trans-identified male prisoner. A 41-year-old male prisoner who was charged with the attempted murder of his elderly parents was kept waiting around for an hour in the corridors of the jail until two female guards were persuaded to carry out the body search under protest. He will be kept in an individual cell due to his privileged status, but if too many trans-identified prisoners arrive, then the prison will run out of individual cells and will have to house the men with women. There are currently five trans-identified male prisoners in the Portuguese jail system, which has about 12,000 inmates in 49 locations. In Afghanistan, the Taliban has restricted which subjects women can study in universities. The restrictions vary from university to university. Women are allowed to study medicine, nursing, teacher training, and Islamic studies in all provinces, but veterinary science, engineering, economics, and agriculture appear off-limits to women nationwide, while opportunities to study journalism are extremely limited. Activists say the number of female students applying to universities will fall dramatically in the coming years, unless the Taliban reopens secondary schools to girls from grades 6 to 12. A 22-year-old black woman in Missouri escaped from a small room that her white captor had built in his basement, where he kept her restrained in handcuffs on her wrists and ankles. She escaped a month after members of the Kansas City community reported that black women had gone missing, but the police dismissed the claims as baseless rumors. The woman reported that she was able to escape when the man, Timothy Hazlitt, left to drop his child off at school. She went to the neighbors for help, still wearing a metal collar locked with a padlock that authorities had to remove. She said that her friends, quote, did not make it out, unquote. The police are now investigating the possibility that at least two more women were victimized. This case is an example of a predominantly white police force refusing to take seriously reports of missing and murdered black, brown, and indigenous victims, especially women and girls. More women in the United Kingdom are turning to prostitution to make ends meet due to the annual consumer price inflation running at about 10%. The English Collective of Prostitutes, a network of current and former prostitutes who are campaigning for decriminalization, 
recorded a 30% jump in the number of callers seeking support for starting prostitution in June. The charity Beyond the Streets reported that it has seen more women returning to or increasing prostitution. As more women enter the market and Johns try to save money, prostitutes may feel forced to offer services they are less comfortable with or take greater risks. Exchanging sex for money is legal in Britain, but support groups say they are deterred from helping prostitutes by laws against inciting or facilitating prostitution, which potentially endangers women entering prostitution for the first time. In London, a woman who was a victim of sexual assault requested all-female nursing care due to safety concerns regarding mixed-sex facilities. She needed to have a complex colorectal surgery at London's Princess Grace Hospital, one of only a few hospitals that use the Da Vinci robot, which can perform delicate and complex operations. She told staff that she would not use, quote, pronouns or engage with such manifestations of gender ideology, unquote. When she arrived for her clinical pre-op assessment, what appeared to be a trans-identified male in a blonde wig and makeup opened the door and made eye contact with her. The encounter, which is now being investigated by the hospital, prompted her to complain and make an urgent request for all-female nursing care. She received an email from the hospital's chief executive, Maxine Estop Green, informing her that the operation was canceled. Maxine told her that the hospital, quote, did not share her beliefs, unquote, and that it was committed to protecting staff from, quote unquote, unacceptable distress. Kelly J. Keene, founder of Standing for Women, called the hospital's stance, quote, misogyny in heels, unquote, and said, quote, once we are in a society whereby women are compelled to pretend men can be women and everything must flow from such orthodoxy, there is no end to the consequences. Those that are hardest to bear are around issues of safeguarding for women and children. Prioritizing a man's feelings over a woman's health is just another example, in this case particularly egregious, of how powerful this ideology really is. The organizations Genspect, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, Our Duty, the Cardinal Support Network, and International Partners for Ethical Care have filed a complaint to the Federal Trade Commission regarding Dr. Sive Gallagher, a Florida-based plastic surgeon who dubs herself Dr. Titus Deletus, which is a glib reference to breast removal surgery. The complaint claims that she uses her huge TikTok following to quote-unquote unfairly and deceptively sway teens into having sex change operations. It accuses Dr. Gallagher, who says she performs between 400 and 500 gender affirmation surgeries a year, of using catchy videos with pop music on social media platforms as a marketing gimmick to attract vulnerable and impressionable minors to everything from breast removals to bottom surgery. The Federal Trade Commission is charged with protecting consumers from unfair and misleading advertising. It processes complaints from the public, launches investigations, sets guidelines, and launches lawsuits. 
It has special rules for marketing to children. Saudi Arabia made the historic decision to allow women to attend the Hajj and Umrah pilgrimages without a mahram or male guardian. The announcement ends a decades-long rule imposed by Saudi Arabia, although exceptions have been given to women attending the Hajj or Umrah pilgrimage with large groups of other women. The annual Hajj pilgrimage forms the fifth pillar of Islam, and Muslims are required to do it at least once in their lifetime. The Umrah can be done at any time of the year and is regarded as a lesser pilgrimage for Muslims. Dear listeners, this is the last world news segment I will be doing for WLRN. I have learned so much since joining in 2020, and I am so grateful to the team and the support of listeners for this opportunity. It is time that I enter the next chapter of my life, and WLRN will always be near and dear to my heart. Stay strong, sisters. You are listening to WLRN. Brought to you by the totally excellent radical feminists at Women's Women's Liberation Liberation Radio Radio News. News. Hey, it's Thistle, and I just want to give a big shout out to Emily Ann Lorenzen for her two years of service to the WLRN Collective. You were a stellar member. I really appreciate the work that you do, Emily, and I'll I'll never forget the poem that you created, I Am Eve, that you read and performed for edition 55, A Feminist Analysis of Christianity. And um, yeah, so thank you so much for your contribution, and I wish you well. Get in the car, we're late for the gig, but don't go too fast. It's been snowing since 10 a.m. And we'll never be this free again. Crossing the bridge over the Gatino to the side that I know when the light becomes strange. We'll never be this free again. On our way home, singing the songs that we learn on our mother's knee For black sheep in need Trying and dying to be free Jesse's been drinking again and again He won't believe, he can't believe We can see right through his soul Mom and Dad, they're on the way, they know these roads have been leading a lonely line. Black sheep they too are born in the night. And we'll meet at the lodge, just like on life and scream up at the sky that we don't feel the same. And we'll never That was Martha Wainwright with her song, Four Black Sheep. Next up, we'll hear excerpts of an interview Aurora Linnea did with Sheila Jeffries about her most recent book, Penile Imperialism, 
The Male Sex Right and Female Subordination, released in September from SpinFX Press. Sheila Jeffries is a lesbian feminist historian, scholar, and activist, whose many books include Beauty and Misogyny, Unpacking Queer Politics, and Gender Hurts. She's also a co-founder of Women's Declaration International. To hear the interview with Sheila in its entirety, go to WLRN's YouTube channel, where you will find it posted on November the 4th. For someone who hasn't read the book, uh, could you introduce the concept of the male sex right? Yes, well, the, the, the subtitle of the book is The Male Sex Right and Women's Subordination. And by the male sex right, I mean um, what um, some other feminist theorists have also used the concept mean, which is that men have as a fundamental right and organizing principle of male domination, that they should have access to the bodies of unwilling women and children, and that they should have that as a right, and that this right is protected by the state and the legal system in things such as, of course, um, prostitution and pornography, and the right of men to use their wives um, in, and partners in marriage, uh, the, uh, and so on, and many other things that I don't cover in the book, but I've covered in previous books, such as arranged and forced marriage and child marriage. There are many, many, many situations. So it is an absolutely fundamental principle that men should have access to the bodies of women and children, and that this should be recognized and protected by the states and governments of male domination. Why do you think that the male sex right is such an essential element um, and foundational element of patriarchy? Sort of what is what is its social function uh, in the maintenance of male power? Or is it more just that really the sort of unbridled pursuit of sexual gratification drives men in and of itself? I do argue in the book that there are several ways in which the expression of the male sex right is fundamental to maintaining male domination and the subordination of women. Uh, and one of these ways, of course, is the uh, exercise of male sexuality on women in partnerships with men. Uh, and I, I point out, as I have pointed out in previous books, that the sexologists, the scientists of sex, understand uh, that if a woman is penetrated and especially if she um, has a sexual reaction to that penetration she is subordinated and she is then fixated on the man and she uh, and she she will subordinate herself to his will there's some stuff that i've used in the book to explain this for instance in the 1960s there was um a, a wonderful book on the power of sexual surrender by a, a female sexologist, in fact, and she explained how when treating women, because there were women have throughout the 20th century and still today resisted the male sex right for the sake of their own dignity, their independence, their control over their own bodies, they have resisted it because they simply didn't want to do these practices. But this sexologist from the 60s in the power of sexual surrender, explains that there are two cases that she was in, involved in of women who didn't want to do uh, penile penetration of their vaginas, um, and or at least did not have orgasms in it. They didn't have orgasms, so they probably had no choice but to accept it. 
the practice, but they didn't have orgasms. So she says, in one case, uh, the woman was taught how to have an orgasm, and then instead of being cross with her husband for leaving his underpants all over the bathroom floor, she was perfectly happy to pick them up. In another case, the husband wanted to move across the states from one side to the other, and the wife did not wish to go with him, so she didn't want him to move. She was uh, treated uh, for being able to have an orgasm, and then she happily moved with him. So it was very, very clear, and there are many, 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 many other examples I could give from all the sexological writings, which are very clear, that making sure that women are penetrated and that they have some kind of pleasure in that penetration subordinates them to their husband will. It makes them willing handmaidens. So that's one way, and there are many ways in which the male sex right and its exercise uh, keeps male supremacy going and keeps men in power. But another way in the book, I've got a chapter on male sexuality as social control in the public sphere. And in the public sphere, of course, the uh, exercise of male sexuality and the male sex right through sexual harassment up to the sex murder of women is a very serious constraint on all of those things which normally we would see as ordinary human rights. You know, in human rights charters, it says what human rights are supposed to be. Women don't have access to any of those if the, if the male sex right is able to interrupt them. For instance, if we think about the right to entertainment and pleasure in public places and so on, the male sex right means that men sexually harass, stalk, and potentially can murder women at public venues of entertainment. So that's why women have to be afraid in those public spaces in a way that men never would have to be. So it, it limits their movements. If we're thinking about women simply being in public space, walking to or from work or from places of entertainment or to visit friends, not only are they likely to be sexually harassed and have to be constantly careful where they're going, what they're ha happening in their journeys, constantly afraid and probably limiting their journeys because many women do limit their journeys, um, but also they may simply be murdered. And I give um, examples in the book of many murders that have taken place in Britain and in Australia for women who were simply going along the footpath or standing at a bus stop and so on and so on. So this is, as I explain in the book, it can be seen as a reign of uh, terror and a reign of very violent and frightening penile imperialism. There are not really other groups of people who have to be afraid that when they're standing by the bus stop, a man may abduct them, murder them, and rape them. I mean, this doesn't really happen to any other groups of people. And yet constantly, as I explain in the book, and I'm sure you know, all of these instances are explained individually. It used to be said that women just were in the wrong place at the wrong time, they should limit their behavior. Um, or uh, it, it's explained in terms of the individual men, you know, the particular man um, had a problem, uh, but it was only an individual man, and we don't need to think about that. But the fact is, what I try to do in the book is put it together and say, we do need to think about this because it's a political practice which has huge effects upon women's lives. It very seriously impedes and restricts the lives of women and children. I suppose a follow-up question for that would be with the, um, the terrorism in the public sphere, why is it so important um, that it is sexual? 
But I wonder about the specific political force of the sexual there, I guess. But one would have to ask, why would they do that? Because, of course, the subordination of women is specifically through our bodies and very specifically sexual. And that gives men pleasure and is very uh, particular in the way that it oppresses women, keeps women in place. And, and so on. So what would be in it for men to simply do these things to women if women, if they accepted women were other equal human beings um, and were not sexual objects, well, what would be in it for them? Um, so yes, women's oppression is specifically sexual. It's carried out sexually. It's seen as sexual. I mean, I, I have written other books, and I'm, I'm sure you're aware, on the way in which uh, women are sexualized for men's excitement in uh, public space and all public places through, for instance, beauty practices. And you know, in, in this country, and it may be true in, in America as well, um, news presenters, for instance, wear extraordinary pornographic shoes. I mean, incredibly high heels, uh, stilettos, shoes that really we haven't seen for 40 years. Back in, the, you know, maybe a long time ago, women were forced into those kinds of shoes if, if you were Marilyn Monroe or something. But now we have these very intelligent, wonderful women news presenters portrayed in this way in pain basically it's in pain the pain's exciting because of in male domination women's pain is exciting to men that's crucial to understand so men are all getting off on the pain of seeing the women portrayed in this way and of course the cameras linger on the feet but there are many 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 other aspects of the way in which women are forced to behave sexually and to array themselves sexually through, for instance, long hair, which satisfies um, sexual fetishism, through makeup, through the exposure of different parts of the body, um, and so on. All of this makes men very excited. So I explain in Beauty and Misogyny, my book on these practices, originally from 2005, um, a sex psychologist uh, wrote a book about women's high heel shoes and what it did for men, and he was very excited about it. And he said that men who are walking behind a woman in high-heeled shoes would just hear the noise first because it sounds like the, the uh, a horse's hooves clopping along the pavement and as soon as he heard that he would go into the first stages of arousal simply that so i explain in that book that the the world in which women are portrayed in this way and pleasing men by uh, their subordination and their service their unpaid sexual service in the streets on the buses and so on um that, that, that it makes the world into a sort of unpaid outdoor brothel for men where they're constantly able to get this satisfaction from the subordination of women in public life. So I guess that's another aspect of this whole problem. But of course, this book was about something slightly different. I have done different books on prostitution, beauty practices, and so on and so on. So yes, the women's sexual exploitation is absolutely fundamental, women's sexual use to their subordination, to what they're for, and to the satisfaction of it for men. You mention um, and focus sometime on what might be considered rather uh, extreme sexual practices, men's sexual practices. For example, um, nappy fetishism or adult babyism is what we tend to um, call it here in the, the States. Um, and some people might criticize the focus on um, these more sort of anomalous sexual practices as being uh, freak behaviors and not representative of 
uh, male sexuality in any kind of general way. What would be your response to that? Um, and what, what insights would you say that these more sort of seemingly aberrant practices uh, offer? Yes, the, the second half of my book looks at the way in which what I call the sexual perversions, they're not now more normally called paraphilias and so on, because the, one of the things that has uh, happened to all of these so-called perversions is that they've been normalized. I explain in the book that since the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s and the development of the pornography industry, many uh, forms of practice that which once would have been unusual and seen as aberrant for men, which, but which did exist because the sexologists write about them in the 19th century. These practices have been normalized. They, the, some of them are subject to campaigns of normalization, like pedophilia, like sadomasochism, like transvestism, all of which I write about in the book. So there have been actual campaigns since the 70s to normalize the practice um, through the, the, these campaigns have been carried out by, for instance, in the, uh, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatrist Association, they, the campaigners seek to destigmatize their practice so that it's seen, the practices are seen as healthy and normal and not matters of mental health. So that's the first thing to make them publicly okay. They have to destigmatize them. Then they seek to remove the law and make these practices all uh, completely acceptable legally, in, such as in cases where there is a law against it, like in pedophilia, there usually is. There are campaigns to remove the age of consent or reduce the age of consent and so on. Uh, in transvestism, uh, of course, all of these things happen as well, a campaign to, uh, to change the medical definition, to get law changed so that the men can engage in the practices and get erections in public spaces and in spaces where women are, and so on and so on. So though these practices might have been seen as unusual in the late 19th century, what we've got in the late 20th century is that many of these practices have become absolutely normalized. For instance, if we think about sadomasochism, and I've got a chapter in the book on sadomasochism called The Rise of Kink, uh, I think it was, it, it was unknown when I was a young woman that strangulation, which of course is, is at risk of death, would be an ordinary sexual practice. Now, as I explain in the book, in women's health magazines and so on. Uh, it's described as something that will make sex a little more exciting. And there's instructions about how to make sure you get strangled safely because it's the women getting strangled and the men doing the strangling, of course. Now that's something that I don't think we could have imagined in the 1970s when I became involved in feminism. And, and at that time, one of the seven demands of the women's liberation movement in the UK was a self-defined sexuality for women. I don't think that we intended strangulation. Right? So things that it would have been impossible to imagine and might have been seen as aberrant at one time and have now been very much normalized to the point at which they're discussed in ordinary magazines and, and of course deaths are happening and men are using the, um, the, uh, the self-defense that a woman consented to uh, strangulation because women now seem to consent to all kinds of serious practices against them as a result of the normalization of sadomasochism that has taken place through pornography in particular and through campaigning organizations. So aberrant is not what these activities are now. If we think about transvestism, for instance, 
presently, not only have we got men who cross-dress for sexual excitement, uh, demanding access to all women's places, demanding to be accepted as women and so on, just about any program that you see on the television has men in drag. You will always have a drag queen. I don't think I watch an evening of television without seeing a drag queen somewhere. Now, that wasn't the case in the 60s and 70s. And of course, in the book, I explain that's an incredibly insulting practice to women and needs to be seen as the same as blackface, but is not treated in the same way because women are not seen as significant and therefore it can't be recognized as an insult. So drag, the imitation of women to mock and make fun of women and create uh, frightening and, and harmful stereotypes of women, that's now completely accepted, as is the institution of transvestites everywhere. So that's what I would say to your potential friend who might say, well, surely these are aberrant uh, forms of behavior. They might once have been still dangerous to women, but maybe aberrant. That's not the case now. And you mentioned nappy fetishism. And of course, in the book, I explain that this practice is, this practice is now, right now, in the process of transformation. You know, 10 years ago, the sexologists weren't writing about it. There weren't any cases in the literature. It was unusual. But now we've got all the usual websites on the internet that are promoting it and supporting men who are into it. We've got specialized shops, huge numbers of specialized retailers, and of course, nappy fetishism and age regression and adult baby syndrome or whatever, all these different names for it, um, is a form of transvestism. It's men pretending to be female babies, pretending to be little girls, and so the clothing is pink and the nappies are have pink edges and the, and the bibs are pink and so on and so on. But it is getting bigger and bigger and we're getting to the point where it's becoming a serious problem. What I'm pointing out in the book is the way that these forms of behavior are actually enormously harmful to women and girls. Really, really harmful. Um, and so in, in terms of nappy fetishism, we've got a situation where, I mean, there was a case recently in Australia where um, the man liked to wear and show his nappies. They'd be visible above his trouser line because that was exciting to him. And so these men are starting to come out in public. You know, they'll be in the office, they'll be in the workplace and so on and so on. Um, so the woman uh, had cust uh, custody of her children and she didn't want the children to be with the man if he was showing the nappy, right? And the judge, in fact, in the court case, in the family court, fortunately decided, I don't think this will last, but he fortunately decided um, that the children should not have to visit a man who was likely to be wearing a nappy um, in front of them, right? Now, it's an, important, it's an important principle. I do explain in the book that one of the forms of normalization that's being demanded for sadomasochism and other practices is that men should be able to do all of these things in their home, they should be able to do all of them in front of children, and that should not be seen as a problem at all. And there's been a court case, uh, there's been a case in this country, in the UK, where a man demanded nappies in prison, you know, in the same way that men can demand makeup in prison, a man demanded to be, to be supplied with nappies in prison. Um, I think in that case, he wasn't allowed to do it, but he soon will be, because all of these practices are being normalized as men's rights, in fact. So we're in the, the moment, at this moment, that a practice which is harmful to women and children, because you should see what the women are expected to do in terms of nappy fetishism, you know, putting up with it in the home, changing the men's nappies, and so on and so on. Um, these, this is a practice which is in the process, and that's why it's so interesting, 
of normalization at this moment. We've gone a very, 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 very long way with transvestism and sadomasochism. But nappy fetishism is not quite there, uh, as is true of many of the other practices that, uh, that are part of kink or the different sexual perversions that I mention in the book. Many of them have not got as far as others. I mean, paedophilia is still having a bit of trouble, um, but it has come a long way so that they're accepted as minor attracted persons. They've changed the vocabulary. They've actually persuaded sexologists and criminologists that there are different categories of paedophiles. There's uh, nice paedophiles who wouldn't dream of touching children who are called the non-contact paedophiles. They may want sex dolls and they may fantasize about children, but of course they would never touch them. And they should be seen as having a sexual orientation. And you mustn't stigmatize them. You mustn't say anything bad about them, because if you do, it will upset them and they will abuse children. That's the most extraordinary thing, this incredible catch-22 that we're in right now, according to the writings of, unfortunately, women criminologists, um, that actually you have to be careful not to say anything nasty about a man in the, your street who is a non-contact paedophile, because that will make him offend against children. So you would be responsible. You, would be, you have to love the paedophiles in your street, the paedophile next door, tell them how much you love them, to try and make sure that they won't act out the fantasies and the things they're now doing to the child sex dolls in their bedrooms. What are your thoughts on how we can work to differentiate those things which are um, injurious male uh, sexual practices that deserve to be stigmatized um, and differentiate those from practices that are pathologized or have been pathologized uh, in the enforcement of patriarchal heterosexuality. Yes, I mean, the, in the interesting thing, of course, is that the, um, the sexual liberationists who decided that these that the, the, the paraphilias, the perversion should all be normalized in the 1970s uh, and thereafter, used the model of homosexuality. They said because homosexuality was once criminalized and as a result of campaigns, um, the law was changed and the stigmatizing of it in um, this DSM as a mental illness was also changed and defeated by gay liberationists. Because that was the case, any form of sexual practice that men chose to engage in, and of course, homosexuality is practiced by both women and men, but the perversions, it's almost entirely male. So we are talking about something a little bit different. Um, they said that the, all of these uh, perversion practices should also be uh, accepted. Now, uh, there are many difficulties uh, with this uh, analysis, but it is, it's worked. It has worked. I think for decades, people have been so sort of brainwashed by all of this. They thought we've got to have gay marriage, we've got to have gay everything, we've got to have a gay everything, and therefore we'll have all sexual practices that men want to do to anybody. But the difference, of course, is that though gay men, for instance, may engage in fetishistic behavior, and some of them do, it is not in itself fetishistic. There's no parts of a person that's chosen in instead of that person. And they're not practices which are specifically about degradation or the acting out of um, differences of power. They are ordinary adult relationships of love and sexual attraction between adult humans. So homosexuality like heterosexuality, there's nothing specifically fetishistic about it. And it doesn't have to be about the eroticizing of power difference. It's not politically created. 
out of the power difference of male domination, which I argue all of these practices of men are because male sexuality is constructed by their position of power. And it's very unfortunate that there's been a confusion, a deliberate confusion, particularly by transvestites, as you know, who have said, who have tried to, to have infiltrated all of the different um, gay organizations and now very often run them and totally dominate their agenda, trying to pretend that their sexual fetish of having the identity of a woman is somehow like a sexual orientation, which is loving other adult human beings of the same sex. So yes, it's extremely unfortunate. And what it's led to is, is considerable damage because I think in the public mind and maybe in the legal mind and in other ways, uh, there's going to be and it's beginning to be damage to the status of lesbians and gays from the fact that men with these perversions are so constantly associated with them. I think it's a very serious problem. And more and more you see gay men, this didn't used to happen, they just ignored it or thought it was nothing to do with them. But more recently, you see more and more gay men coming out to say that transvestism is a serious problem because they are realizing the serious damage to their own position. For instance, transvestism wipes out homosexuality. <laughs> After decades of lesbians and gay men trying to assert gay rights, transvestism says that, for instance, a woman has no right to be a lesbian and choose women. She's got to choose men if they say they have a female penis or if they say they're a woman or she's transphobic, engaging in hate, and so on and so on. So, you know, transvestism in the end comes back to bite homosexuals in the sense that it actually wipes out the concept of homosexuality. So the two things are tremendously, tremendously different. And it's very important that everybody gets educated on that difference and is able to defend and speak about that difference because obviously we don't want harm to lesbian and gay rights from the behavior and the campaigns of transvestites and all of these other uh, men with harmful behaviours as well. This is Joe Brew, and you are listening to WLRN. Male sex right is the cause, purpose, and ultimate goal of patriarchy. The only reason opposite-sex attracted men have spent all of human history systemically and personally oppressing women and girls through violence, intimidation, and legal denial of personhood is to ensure their sexual access to us. If men did not want to screw women and girls, patriarchy would not exist. This fact is so obvious it's a wonder that any woman anywhere could fail to recognize it. Yet most women do deny it, not least of all when defending their choice to voluntarily couple with and sexually engage with men. If you're a pessimist like I am, though I would argue I'm actually a realist, then you'll agree that patriarchy is ultimately eternal because the heterosexual male's desire to screw women and girls at all costs is biological, therefore unchangeable and insurmountable. Individual men may become aware of the ideological component of their sex drive, their sense that they have a right to sex with women, and choose to dismantle it, but these are few and far between. 
Categorically speaking, opposite-sex attracted men will always feel entitled to sexual intercourse with women and girls, and thus always have motive to terrorize us, control us, psychologically, emotionally, and financially oppress us, manipulate us, etc. They not only oppress us in order to have sex with us, they use sex itself as a tool of domination, control, and oppression. Never forget that rape is sex to the rapist. The physical outcome, the pleasure, the orgasm is the same for him as it is for a man having consensual sex with a woman. And while it is the most violent, harmful, and effective method, rape is not the only way men use sexual intercourse against women. I could go on and on about porn, social media, prostitution, sexual coercion in romantic relationships, female beauty standards set in the entertainment industry, the way girls are primed from early childhood to be sex objects even before they hit puberty, and what have you. But Sheila Jeffries already said everything there is to say, probably better than I could. The point is, sex is not only the goal of our oppression, but one of the key tools used to achieve our oppression. Even liberal pseudo-feminists have long recognized this enough to call out how female sexuality is never entirely our own. Men ruined sex for women, leaving us to choose between the conservative approach that denies us our natural right to sexual pleasure, desire, and expression, and the liberal approach that turns female sexuality into a pornified performance for men. They use sex against us in so many different ways, most women and girls don't even fully realize it. Whether we want sex or don't want it, have it or abstain, practice monogamy or non-monogamy, have casual sex or only do it in serious romantic relationships, we can't win with these men. They turn every single sexual choice women and girls make into a joke, an embarrassment, a sin, a weakness, a personal failing, a sign of inferiority, an excuse for abuse or abandonment or infidelity. They call us sluts, whores, and bitches for having sex with men, despite the fact that's all they want us to do. And if we deny them sex, they sometimes kill us or rape us or punch us or stalk us or commit a mass shooting or kill themselves. The male sex right is one major reason I have always been a big defender and supporter of voluntary celibacy for women and girls. I also support, defend, and feel for asexual women, who many so-called feminists often criticize for what can only be pro-male reasons. There's a good way and a bad way for women to choose celibacy, the bad, of course, being the shame-based, moralistic, self-hating way of the religious conservatives. But there is also a good way to reject sexual intercourse as a woman. Not with the attitude that sex itself is wrong and reflects badly on women who do it, but instead with the attitude that sex with men, and even sex with male-identified women, is not in our best personal or political interests. Choosing celibacy from a place of power, dignity, and self-love carries with it absolutely no shame or guilt around our own sexual feelings. It does not require us to pretend we lack sexual desire. Instead, feminist celibacy is a rational choice we make to protect ourselves, to honor ourselves, and to disrupt patriarchy at its very core. Women who argue against celibacy, who try to convince women both asexual and allosexual to have sex they don't genuinely want to have, are not feminists as far as I'm concerned. It's fair to call out the shame-based misogynistic celibacy doctrine of the religious right, 
you can do that while still supporting and promoting feminist celibacy. In a world saturated with the male sex right, how can we pretend that sexual intercourse is ever a neutral, harmless, apolitical thing for us women, especially sex with men? How can any woman insist that we can threaten or weaken patriarchy while submitting to the male sex right? Thanks for listening to WLRN's 79th edition podcast on the male sex right. Thank you so much, Sheila Jeffries, for speaking with us. Until next time, this is April No, your guest producer this month, filling in for the amazingly talented Jenna DeCordo. This Canadian WLRN member is signing off on another WLRN podcast. And this is Aurora signing off on another edition of WLRN's monthly handcrafted podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Spinster, Overit, and SoundCloud, in addition to our WordPress site. Thank you for listening. This is Thistle Pedersen. Thanks for tuning in. Next month, we'll focus our program on a digest of Kelly J. Keene's Speaker's Corner USA Tour taking place in October and November in locations all over the U.S., including L.A., San Francisco, Tacoma, Chicago, Miami, and other hotspots in our country. Our handcrafted podcasts always come out the first Thursday of the month, so look for it on Thursday, December 1st. If you'd like to receive our newsletter that notifies you when each podcast, music show, and interviews are released, please sign up for our newsletter on the WLRN WordPress site. Stay strong in the struggle, and thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing and want to donate to the cause of Feminist Community Radio, please visit our WordPress site and click on the Donate button. Check out our merch tab to get a nice gift in exchange for your donation. And if you are interested in joining our team, we are always looking for new volunteers to conduct interviews, write blog posts, post to our Facebook and other social media pages, and do other tasks to keep us moving forward as a collective of media activist women. Thanks for listening. This is Sekhmet Shiawal, signing off for now. And this is Emily Ann. Our monthly podcasts are always crafted with tender, loving care and in solidarity with women worldwide. Thanks for your support. We would love to hear from you, so please share, like, and comment widely. But how will we find our way out of this? What is the antidote for the patriarchal kiss? How will we find what needs to be shown? And then after that, where is home? Gender hurts.